Morning, church. At Medical Bible Church, we like to preach on things that everybody agrees with. And there is no conflict at all. No, we actually, we, we, as a church, one of the things that, that we feel convicted by is that the Bible steps in and speaks into every single one of our lives, and, and there's not a single person that walks away from that experience unchallenged. Um, I, my hope and my aim and my prayer as the result of today is that every single person, regardless of the presuppositions you walked into the room with today, walk out feeling encouraged and equipped to follow Jesus better. Bottom line. Um, we're in a series called It's Complicated, where we're tackling things that we don't like to preach about, Christians don't like to talk about, or have a poor time doing, uh, conversing about them um, when they actually do converse about them with one another or with the outside world. And alcohol is no different. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll be there in just a little bit, but as you're turning in there or you're going there on your phone, um, I'm going to start our story today with Southern California, 1993. In 1993, I think I was like right around a freshman in high school or so, and I remember our, the youth pastor at our church was just this awesome guy. He was just this godly man. He loved Jesus. He loved the Bible. He taught us the Bible in a way that we got. It was something that was always super helpful. And I just remember thinking, this guy, man, this is, I, I want to be like this guy. If I could picture in my head the type of Christian I'd want to be, it'd be like Scott. This guy's just fantastic. And we'd go over to his house, a bunch of us, um, his son was my age, and so we'd hang out together, and we would like, you know, just do gaming and everything else and ingest large amount of paste picani sauce and chips and soda. And it was just, it was, for a freshman in high school, it was epic. It was awesome. And I remember one time going over to his refrigerator to get another soda. And I open up the refrigerator door, and what do I see inside? A human head. No, I'm just kidding. But the, in my mind, it was that jarring. It was just like, it was. It was beer. And I was just like, what is, what is, what is wrong with this picture? And I shut it really quick because I thought maybe I didn't see it. And I open it, I'm like, it's there. And to be honest, I don't know. I honestly can't tell you for sure if I actually was seeing beer or I was seeing O'Doul's, but I, it didn't matter because it was like the, the appearance of evil was just emanating ooga, 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 out of that fridge. And I was just like, the whole time I'm looking at this, I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? I thought Scott was a Christian. Christians don't drink. I'm, I'm a, a growing up, I'm a, growing up in a Baptist church um, as a pastor's kid, and, and the idea of alcohol and a Christian was just like, wow. And so when I'm looking at this fridge, I'm like, what is wrong with this picture? And some of you, that was your upbringing. You're like, oh, that's my story. Others of you, if you walked to your fridge growing up and you opened it up and there was no beer, you'd be like, what is wrong with this picture? Now, why is there such a difference as far as believers? As far as this picture, why was summer, Southern California, 1993, opening that fridge such a massive collision of my perspective and belief and convictions and understanding and, and it's such a difficult time for me to understand this godly man and alcohol being something in the same sentence. In order to get to that point, I think we have to have a brief and totally incomplete history of alcohol. This is going to be, I'm going to miss all the important stuff, but the, some of the things that we really need to speak on, and I, just starting with the whole concept of wine. Wine is not something that, that came about through uh, France or Italy or Central California. Wine originated in Israel, in, in that land. It was just perfect location. In fact, Israel was the one that, that exported wine out to Egypt, um, out to other empires. They were known for their wine. 
And honestly, to, compared to today's standards, it was awful. It, was, it tasted disgusting. They had to add honey because it was just so, it was messed up. They even added pepper to make it taste better. Can you imagine adding pepper to wine to make it? But that's what they did. But, but for whatever reason, people enjoyed it. And throughout the, the scripture in the Old Testament, there were different words to describe it. Um, Yayin is the Hebrew word that talked about fermented fruit juice. Now, this could be like fruit from dates, but it was most often fruit from grapes. And so like what we would typically know as wine. Tirash was wine uh, in the process of fermentation. Once you juice, there's some, some people are like, yeah, well, all the wine that you see in the Bible, it was just grape juice. No. After you juice grapes in Israel, they start to ferment within six to nine hours. The, the fermentation process begins in that. And when they got to Tirash, that was at the point where there was a foam on the top that they were, okay, now that the fermentation process is happening. Asis was the word for alcoholic sweet wine. Again, just a different stage of the process of the fermentation process. And shikar was fermented barley. Now, in the New Testament, you have the Greek equivalent. To, these words show up again in the New Testament, at least three out of the four of them. And we're the Bible is talking about these aspects of wines, fermentation, this drink that people had. And whatever, some people make the point that the wine that we see in the Old Testament had a lower alcoholic, alcohol rating to it. That's probably true. But whatever it was, it was enough to get you drunk because you see people who are drinking it too much getting sloshed. And so, and the Bible's speaking to that. So the, it had an alcoholic content to it. Again, within nine hours, the process is, was already going there. Uh, you don't see uh, the word shakar in the, the New Testament, but it is something in the Old Testament that's translated as beer. It's probably a little bit uh, more of a punch than beer. It's more of like a Belgian uh, triple ale or a double IPA content. Okay, so when I'm growing up, I'm like recognizing this. What I'm not recognizing is the good. Because uh, again, as a Baptist kid, <laughs> I, I didn't know anybody who drank. I mean, people who were sinners, yeah, but no one in our church. <laughs> I never understood or heard passages that talked about the good aspects of alcohol, but the scriptures speak to it. It talks about wine being a gift of God. In fact, God's judgment on a country was exhibited by the lack of wine. Wine made a heart glad. Wine was something that was looked at as a blessing. Wine was, was given as a prescription to don't drink water, drink wine, because the water in the area that you're in is sketchy. Drink this. This is going to help your stomach. Wine is talked about in a good way as a gift from God, but because the Bible isn't dumb, it also talks about the fact that when one abuses this gift of God, it turns into a curse. That all throughout Scripture, we see the curse and the after effects of drunkenness, of alcoholism. That, that it's not just this one-dimensional substance, it actually is multifaceted. If you're somebody who gets a gift, that is celebrated. On Christmas, you get a couple of gifts. That's pretty cool. But if you're a kid that expects multiple gifts every single day, you are spoiled. And what's happened is the gift that, that would, to anyone else, any one of your friends, would be awesome and, and sacred and special. You look at it like, yeah, whatever, I have a bunch of those. And you just more and more gifts. And all of a sudden, you become rotted, rotted out, and, and, and it destroys not only you, but the relationship you have with those around you. Same could be said for the gift of alcohol that we see in Scripture. This is a gift God gives people when it's used not as a gift, but as just something that's like whatever. It becomes something that ruins a person and ruins the relationships they have. 
So in the New Testament, you see Paul. He goes from a Jewish um, environment where the culture was all about recognizing the, the importance and sacred place that alcohol has in a, per, a follower of God's life. That this is something that is done in ritual. It's something done with family. It's something that was sacred and special. And he engages a world that has, is totally divorced from that perspective of alcohol. He's engaging a Gentile and Greek and Roman environment that was on the, on the verge of excess. And what they would do is, is alcohol was still present, but it was all just about, like, just let's get sloshed. Let's, let's just drink this to excess. It wasn't something that was looked at from the Jewish standpoint or God's perspective. This is a gift. When you spoil this gift, it ruins you. That wasn't there. And so as he's talking to these people, he's expressing to them, listen, new believers, you need to understand that an evidence of Jesus' work in you is that you look at the stuff that you have and you don't let that stuff define you because that ruins you. That's, that's not a mark of someone who's following Jesus. You look at the way that you drink alcohol, and, you, and this is not something that overwhelms you. It's not something that you, you surrender to. You're surrendering to Jesus. So church leaders, church leaders, you guys can drink. You guys can have wine, but don't have too much because when you do that, all of a sudden you're totally showcasing the fact that the thing that Jesus did on the cross, that was really awesome, but it doesn't impact my heart. It doesn't impact my life. You want to, and Paul was clear about this. You want to know what's an example of people who are still living in the dark? They get together and they have parties where they just get drunk. That's a picture of someone who has no gospel impact on them. That's not a picture of what Jesus did in your life. And he was really hardcore about that. What he didn't do was say, don't drink. He said, when you drink, you drink differently. We see this all the way through Christian history. In fact, we, as, as Minooka Bible Church, we're... The guys who started the Protestant Revolution, the whole Reformation, was people like Martin Luther and John Calvin. These are people who had an incredible, serious perspective on sin and scripture. And yet Martin Luther, he was married to a brewer. His wife brewed beer and ale. When he would write about missing his wife when he was on journeys, he said, man, I so miss my bride, and I so miss her beer. (laughs) John Calvin, part of his church salary, the church had to pay him a salary, but they also had to pay him 250 liters of wine per year for him and his guests. These were people who took seriously scripture. And they, were, and they were able to handle the concept of alcohol without conflict. Fast forward 100 years, you have people starting to checkerboard the east coast of the United States, what would become the east coast of the United States, with the pilgrims and the Puritans. And I don't know what you think of when you think of pilgrims, but I just think of these belt-buckle-hatted people looking for witches to burn or something. I don't think of raging kegers. Wow. Exact opposite. I think these guys are prudes. But these guys were individuals who, who apt, they took sin more seriously than we do. They took scripture more seriously than most of us do. And in the midst of that, they also had a relationship with alcohol that was healthy. One of the first things that they constructed when getting to the new world were breweries. They didn't trust the water. They weren't sure of that. But it was more than just that. It was that they could raise a glass to the glory of God. Now, how did we get from that to spring break? How did we get from that, the Christian perspective of alcohol not being in tension or conflict with a believer's life and what we see today and just the absolute just whatever it is? I don't know for sure. And what I'm about to tell you is total speculation, but this is my theory, okay? So you can just take this for whatever it's worth. These guys get here in the 1600s. 100 years later, what do we do in America? We declare our independence from Great Britain. 
We say, listen, we are no longer a part of the mother country. We're actually not a part of one identifiable group. We're a, we're a mishmash of a bunch of different groups, and we're declaring our independence from you. And part of the mantra and the charter that we proclaimed is that what we have is this amazing ability to pursue life, liberty, what? The pursuit of happiness. You want to know what my life is all about? It's about my independence. And I think what took place in that 100 years after those Puritans landed was independence poisoning. You condition your brain with, you know what my life is all about? My independence. You don't have to tell me what to do. You're not the one speaking into my life. I am. My life is about one pursuit, and that is of hap- my own personal happiness. So step off and don't tell me what to do, okay? Because we know, we know what we do with people who tell us what to do. We revolt, and we, re- we rebel, and we start up our own. That's what we do. And after 100 years, whether that was in relationship to food or liquor, all of a sudden, Americans are known for this excess, this perspective, which is just poison. That there's no, there's no constraints, no constrict, constrictions upon oneself. It's like, whatever I want to do, I do. And Christians are looking at this and going, this is messed up. We're looking at families destroyed, alcoholism running rampant through all these different homes. Our culture is just going south. It's going down the toilet. And when we look in the scriptures, we see that the evidence of God's blessing is not this drunken behavior, but instead we see evidence of joy. The problem is alcohol. And so what we're going to do is we're going to say that we're personally convicted against alcohol, and so should everyone else be. And so in 1919, prohibition happens. And the entire country is proclaimed dry. Now, does, does that stop people from drinking? No. Where do they do it? In secret. So this group of Christians, a lot of them were women, had a pretty compelling argument. But the fact of the matter was is that this was something that was going to, that caused the whole country to say, okay, we're going to get rid of this. We're going to stop this. And this is going to be the means to us being more pure. We're going to be more right with God because we're not going to, and we're, our culture is going to be better because alcohol is not going to mess us up the way it has every other generation. And this lasted just like under 15 years. Not only were people drinking in secret, but the people who wanted to drink did what every American does when Americans get upset. And they protested. And they protested enough that it made um, the, the government take notice, and eventually that amendment was repealed, and prohibition was over. Now, a lot of people rejoiced about that, and a lot of people were like, yeah, now finally we can drink again. But the Christian church was never the same. A lot of denominations have a different perspective on alcohol than the the brand of Christianity that I came out of, but a lot of the Christians held to the Baptistic perspective of, you know what, we really agree. Alcohol is so dangerous. No follower of God should engage in it at all. It should be something that we completely abstain from. This is our conviction, and this is what we should avoid. And so even Christians in churches... They, they can, some of them drank, but it was in secret. You would never tell anyone in church that you drank because people would judge you for that. And that produces kids that are watching this. Okay, mom and dad do this at home, but you could never talk about it at church because people will judge you. Okay, so there's this separate, this, this thing where like, okay, I keep church over here and my home life is over here. I've seen abuses of alcohol, but the church really isn't speaking into it. They're just talking about how dangerous alcohol is. You, you should never do it. And so, okay, so again, it's just something that's secret, set apart, whatever. After World War II, people start doing this new phenomenon in a brand new way or with at least brand new um, just focus and passion. And that was, we're going to send our children away from our home, away from the home church, to another place where they would go to university, they'd go to college. 
And then in that environment, what you have is individuals who are separated from mom and dad and church and accountability, and they're introduced to alcohol. And if you have no accountability and the model of what you do and the way that you drink is in, in private without the restraints of the church or anyone else, all of a sudden you have a product from that. The product is John Belushi. The product is a perspective on alcohol that all of a sudden starts to emulate, you know, just just emanate out of the college system of, you know what, the purpose of alcohol is to get smashed. We have, this is the, to party, and we're going to party hard, (laughs) and we're going to like just, we're going to go as fast as we can and get as drunk as fast as we can, and that is the purpose and the point of alcohol. And the problem is, is that that didn't stay in college, but all those college students grew up, and they started having their own families. And some of them said, okay, that was stupid. I'm not going to do the same thing that I used to do. But many didn't. In fact, the predominant perspective on drinking comes from that period of time in one's life. Binge drinkers are predominantly in the 18 to 34 range, but the people who binge drink the most are 65 plus. What we recognized was that this, this became kind of the norm, which brings us right back to Southern California in 1993 and me in that fridge saying, how can this be that my youth pastor, who I thought was a godly man, would so lower his standards as to have beer? See, my only two models, examples of handling alcohol were the pharisaical prohibitionists those who are standing on the sidelines with their arms crossed saying, well, our purpose is purity. And uh, what we're going to do is basically um, say that our way of purity is the way that everyone should experience purity. Purity means no alcohol. That's our personal conviction. It should be everyone's conviction. That's what a Christian does. Or undisciplined lushes whose purpose is party. So let's get smashed as possible, as soon as possible. Wouldn't it be amazing if the scripture actually spoke of a model that wasn't one of these two? I believe that it does. And so if you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul, in this section, is speaking about a a believer's freedom. He's dealing with a group of people. Again, he's in a pagan culture, but there's some Jews in the mix. And you got these Jews that are like, yeah, we know exactly what we know, right and wrong, and we have our own convictions. And, And these Gentiles, who used to be pagans, who used to worship all these different idols, they they're totally okay with going into the market and buying the discounted meat. What's the problem with that? Who doesn't want to sail? The meat's discounted because it already has been sacrificed to some god who obviously didn't eat it because the god doesn't exist. But the priest that would offer this to this god, the god wouldn't eat it, and then they would take that meat and they would bring it into the marketplace and sell it at a discounted rate. So you got like 50% off, 40% off meat. And so you got the Gentiles coming out of church going, boom, we got a sale today. And they would get, bring home and have steaks and everything. And then you'd have the Jews were like, you can't eat that. Do you know, do you know what happened? you know what that, that came from? That came from the pagan temples. So I'm not a pagan. I'm a Christian. And this looks good. You can't do that. So Paul's called in to referee this whole thing. And he says this in verse 23 of chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal that you want to go to, eat whatever is put before you without raising question of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, well, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience's sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should, I, should my freedom be judged by someone else's conscience? 
If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let me read that one more time. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So Paul's basically boiling it down. He says, the brief drop in the bucket of time I have on this planet, in this time, my life revolves around two unified centers. If you want to just boil down what life is all about, it's two unified centers. One is loving God, and the other is loving others. It's not one or the other. It's not, well, you know, what I need to do is I really need to love God, but I don't really care about other people, or I I love people, but I don't really care about God. It's, Jesus said in Matthew 22, it's both. And so I've never seen Matthew 22, the great commandment ascribed to alcohol uh, consumption, but it should be, because the way Christians should consume alcohol should be through the lens of loving God and loving others. I'm going to talk about two options for a believer. Every believer here at this church that's of age has these two options. If you're under 21, you have no options. (laughs) Your option is to obey Romans 13, which says we obey the law of the land. And um, so until you're 21, zero options. When you're 21, you have two. The first of the two options goes like this. It's a statement of saying the way that I don't drink glorifies God and loves those around me. The first part of it, the way I, I don't drink glorifies God because I'm recognizing that 1 Corinthians six nineteen is true, that my body is not my own. I'm on this planet for just a, just a cough amount of time. It's like, pew, it's gone. But during that time, I recognize that my body is not my own, so I'm going to let it be dictated to by him, not by anyone else. Secondly, I don't believe that I personally can glorify God by drinking. For, for whatever the case would be, I'm choosing option one because of the fact that I... I Man, I've struggled with alcohol. I would probably classify myself as an alcoholic. Or, you know what? Um, I, I'm just, I've got such an addictive personality that alcohol and me is, is, this is not a good fusion here. This is a bad mix. Or, you know what? I don't like it. And not only do I not like the taste of it or whatever, I, I'm around people that really are, struggle with this. So this is something that I'm choosing option one because I personally, do, I personally, this is my own personal conviction that I don't believe that I can glorify God by drinking. If this is your option, if you're choosing option one, you're saying God's given us the gift and the freedom to drink or to not drink. And I'm choosing the freedom not to drink because I know that that there's enough warning in Scripture about what happens when you get drunk and what that can lead to that I'm cool staying away from that. Scripture's, again, totally clear on the fact that, that drunkenness leads to some bad stuff. It leads to incest violence, adultery, mockery and brawling, poverty, late night and early morning drinking, hallucinations, stupid behavior, murder, gluttony and poverty, puking, staggering, madness, loudness combined with laughter then prolonged sleep, nakedness, uber laziness, escapism, depression, and aimlessly staying up all night. And as I read this list, you know that there's people in your life that you could put on this screen. This might be you. Your name could be here. Scripture says that, that that's not who we are. And so your option might be, I struggle with this. And so my option has to be number one. And the thing that I love about, about being in a church is that you're around enough people that can give you examples of, of both the, the wreckage of their life in this and also the, what happens when Jesus gets a hold of it. 
there's an amazing amount of honesty across Minooka Bible Church, but what I really, really love is that if you're looking for varsity level authenticity and honesty, it's at Celebrate Recovery, you know, the thing that takes place here on Thursday nights. And so I, want, I wanted to give you a chance to hear from one of our own, uh, Jim Henderson, who is going to tell you kind of just a snapshot of his story. Will you please give it up for Jim? In church, my name is Jim. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I have struggled with alcohol and drug addiction for most of my life. Uh, I grew up in a Christian family, attending Larkin Baptist Church in Joliet every Sunday, where my sweet and loving mother was the organist for most of her life. I also attended Awanas and the Christian Youth Center, and I was educated with all the stories of the Bible. But most importantly, Jesus sacrificed for our sins on the cross. I knew all these things. I knew right from wrong, but as I grew older, this had little importance in my life, as you'll soon hear. Growing up on the east side of Joliet and Ridgewood, I started hanging around some of the wrong kind of kids, which led me down some pretty bad paths. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> When I was in eighth grade, we moved to the west side of Joliet into a much nicer neighborhood. But guess what? Some of those same kind of bad kids lived there too. They just had different names and different faces. It was at this time when I started smoking marijuana. And then when I got into high school, I started drinking alcohol and going to parties. I was also a diehard wrestler and a competitive water skier. Living this lifestyle at such a young age was expensive, so I started selling pot so I could afford to drink and to party. Which, besides sports, was about the only thing that I really cared about at this time. This was the beginning of Satan's stranglehold on my life. When I started college, I was introduced to cocaine and various other drugs. It always started with the alcohol, then the cravings for cocaine would kick in. This was a very expensive habit also, so again, I dove headfirst into the business of selling cocaine. After college, I went straight into the construction industry as a carpenter building custom homes. In 1988, I got married, and one year later, my son, Zach, was born. I was making good money, really good money, and started accumulating all the things of this world, such as a house, a boat, camper trailer, um, at a, a vacation place on a, on a water ski lake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was living the dream, or so I thought. I was very good at being a, quote, functioning alcoholic uh, slash cocaine addict, but the consequences of this lifestyle would eventually catch up to me. After 14 years of marriage, my wife got fed up with my alcohol and my drug use, and she divorced me. I lost her, lost my house, but most importantly, my relationship with my son would never be the same. 
Being single again, I started hitting alcohol harder than ever, getting DUI after DUI. Getting arrested had become a regular occurrence in my life. Finally, on March 17th, which was St. Patrick's Day, um, the best thing that could have happened to me did happen to me. I got arrested again. This time it was for my fourth DUI, uh, my second possession of cocaine, and my second driving on a suspended license charge. This time my family was not going to bail me out. And actually, I did not care whether I lived or if I died. One, one week later, my sister came to visit me when I was in jail. She told me that I was in denial, but I denied it. <laughs> her, her and her husband, who was a pastor, had started a program called Celebrate Recovery in Wisconsin. She also told me that there was one at Harvest Church in Oswego, which met on Friday nights. Uh, the Minooka Celebrate Recovery here had not started at that time yet. So before she left, she gave me her Celebrate Recovery Bible, which I took back to my cell and I started reading. God was leading me to just the right passages and just the right testimonies. Then I read in 2 Corinthians 1.9, we felt we were doomed to die and saw how powerless we were to help ourselves. This was exactly how I felt. And at this time, felt God come down and take me out of my denial. It was also at this time that I got down on my hands and knees and I cried out to God, asking for his forgiveness. And I asked Jesus back into my heart again. Um, God has taken over the wheel of my life ever since. He has forgiven me and taken away any urge for me to drink or ever pick up another drug. Today, I am over four years and two months clean and sober. It's all by the grace of God. Through Celebrate Recovery, God has given me a new life with hope and a future. I have dedicated the rest of my life to serving God and to helping others in recovery through my life experiences, strengths, and hopes. Um, if you would like to hear my full testimony, which is about 25 minutes, uh, it's really tough converting this down in a little... <laughs> um, come join us um, in the Red Room, 7 p.m. on Thursday, June 11th, for Celebrate Recovery, and you can hear, hear the full version of my testimony. Um, I'd like to thank Pastor Errol and the staff for allowing me this awesome opportunity to share with you guys, and I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Thanks. <laughs> Definitely, definitely jump in on June 11th to check that out. Amazing, amazing reality. So someone who takes option one says, this is something that is not helpful in my life. This is something that has been an issue. And so to glorify God, I'm choosing not to go there. But not only glorifying God, the way I don't drink loves those around me by doing this. 
First off, it allows you to say, I'm going to be a beacon of the gospel's work in me to those I love around me who abuse alcohol by showing them a better path. You have people in your world, you may have people in your world who are drowning in alcoholism, and they don't have an example of anyone who doesn't drink. Uh, so for you, if you're taking option one, what you are doing that for, part of what you're doing that for is saying, I'm going to, to be option one so that I, in the midst of everyone else, they could say, you know what, everybody drinks, but this guy doesn't. Maybe there's something that, I, maybe there's hope for me out of the, the stuff that I'm struggling with. Now that's important, but I would say equally important is that when you make this decision, you take this conviction that you say this as well. I will love other believers by resisting judgment of their healthy handling of alcohol, even though our convictions greatly differ. This is something the people in my church and myself did not do very well at. It was very easy to jump into a place of judgment for people who don't share the same convictions. See, option one does not say alcohol is bad. Option one says alcohol is bad for me. And I'm not going to judge someone who's handling alcohol in a healthy way that's a believer, um, even though our convictions greatly differ. Paul talks about this when he says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing that is, that is, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person... It is unclean. We have a difference of conviction, a difference of convictions, but we can still have fellowship with one another. Does that make sense? We got to do that, church. I mean, that's that's imperative for us to do that. Option one may be the option that you need to take, and it might be one that you're not currently actively involved with, but you should go there. If not, the option two, the second option is this: the way that I drink glorifies God and loves those around me. The way that I drink glorifies God and loves those around me. Let's start off with the first part. If I'm, as a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this, this is no bearing, okay, on you. You, you can make, make up your own rules. You know what it does in your life. You know what it does in other people's life, and you've seen the wreckage and ruin. This is for a follower of Jesus. It says, I believe that God loves me enough to set parameters for me, and so I'm going to engage this through that lens. I drink as one who knows whose I am. I am not my own. I was bought with a price. And so because of that, I'm not, I'm not the one that dictates how much I drink. That, that really is something that I, I surrender over to the Lord. So I will partake as one who's been given a gift of freedom from God to drink within God's parameters for God's glory. And that, that means this. Uh, my, son, my, my son, Micah, he just graduated from eighth grade. He's 14. And within a year, he's going to start learning how to drive. That means that I'm going to hand him keys. He's going to stick that into an ignition, starting a small series of explosions and a large murderous vehicle that will then go around all around this town. I'm putting you on notice, okay? This is, this is going to happen. Now, he, ha- he will have the freedom to drive, but as soon as he has the freedom to drive, all of a sudden, for his good and all of your good, there are certain parameters that he has to obey. Speed limits, signaling, you know, think, don't drive with your eyes closed. Things like that. You know, the, the things that are going to help everyone around. Things that you need to understand if you're going to exercise the freedom to drive. If he takes the freedom to drive, he has responsibilities that are put upon him. Right now, he doesn't have those responsibilities. He doesn't have to think about them. Why? Because he's not exercising the freedom. As soon as he does, however... He has a new set of parameters put on him. Same thing is true of alcohol. If you're, if you're choosing option one, you don't have to worry about any of these things. 
If, however, you're choosing the freedom to drink, then all of a sudden, for your good and the good of everyone around you, you have parameters that you're undertaking. First parameter is being sober. All throughout Scripture, it's talking about the importance of us not dripping into, sipping into, getting into drunkenness. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, just unrestrained, just massive, just out of controlness. But be drunk on the Spirit. God is saying, I want you to get to the end of your life with your eyes wide open, looking back on all the crazy stuff in life and saying, I was sober through all of that. I mean, I, I was a part of the adventure every step of the way, and I, I remember it all. If you're going to be out of control for anything, be out of control, surrender your control to me. That's going to be crazy enough. Be drunk on the Spirit instead of being drunk on some type of uh, intoxicating drink, okay? Now, it glorifies God for us to, if you're choosing option two, that you drink intelligently. You may have never heard this in church, but this is important for us to understand. As followers of Jesus, if you choose option two, it glorifies God to drink intelligently. So if you've got a Heineken, that's like a 12-ounce beer, it's right around 5, 5.4% alcohol. That's the equivalent of one five-ounce glass of wine. And if you want to know, a five-ounce five ounce, um, amount of wine is not the full cup. So it's not like, look, 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 five ounces. Five ounces is, if you're looking at a, a typical wine glass, it's right where the curvature starts to taper up to the top. Right at that point, that curve where it starts to taper, that's the five-ounce point. So if, if you're in a restaurant and they're giving you a professional pour of wine, that's right around 5%, which equals a 12-ounce beer which also equals a 1.5 um, ounce of 40% alcohol, like vodka or tequila or something like that. Now, the important thing for us to understand is that, that, that when you, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is a governmental organization, it's not a Christian organization, they say moderate drinking. So like drinking to not, not to excess is within a 24-hour period, for an adult male, typical body size, and we have different body sizes in here for sure, but a typical adult male can have two of those. Not two of each, <laughs> but like two, two beers or two glasses of five-ounce wine or, or two shots or, or one, you know, a combination. But it's, it's, not, it's not one of those things where it's like all of them. And for a female, it's one per day. Now, yes, you, you're having the same reaction as the 8 a.m. service. The, the, the 9.30 service is like, oh, yes, this makes sense. But the 8 a.m. service was like, <laughs> I had no idea. Truth is, is that as a follower of Jesus, we drink intelligently. We understand that, that if you're going to drink, you're going to be someone who understands how much alcohol is what you're in, what you're drinking. Which is why it is so clear to me that it was Satan who invented the Red Solo Cup. <laughs> Toby Keith may have made it famous, but it was Satan who invented it. Why? Because most of the time, you're not using the ridges to say how much alcohol is here. You're just like, fill it up and proceed to party. And the thing is about this, then you're like, how many of those have you had? I don't know. It doesn't say. I just, you know, I just keep filling it up whenever it goes down. My, my brother and I, we're going to be uh, climbing a mountain in, um, in August in, in Colorado. He's like, Errol, what we're going to do is we're going to go climb a 14er. And I had no idea what that meant. But apparently it's 14,000 feet. And I'm like, oh, that sounds great. He says, no, it doesn't sound great. You're going to have to train for this. I'm like, ugh. And he says, okay, you're going to have to run like five miles um, a day, uh, like you do five miles of treadmill. And then like um, on, on off days, you're going to do like a trail run. Now there's a difference. When I'm on a treadmill, I can have like an iPad or, or, or a book or watching YouTube or something. And I can just like, I'm running. I'm not even thinking about my feet. I'm just thinking about whatever it is I'm focusing on. When I run at Lions Park on the trails, up and down hills, over rocks, over branches, roots, snakes, when I'm doing that, I'm thinking every moment I'm running, I'm thinking of where my feet are going. 
Why? Because it's different than running on a treadmill. A lot of Christians engage alcohol, Christians who choose to drink alcohol, engage alcohol like they're drinking water, like there's no difference. If I ran Lions Park the way that I run on a treadmill, I'm going to seriously harm myself. Same thing is true of alcohol. As Christians, we need to be the type of people who are glorifying God by drinking intelligently, knowing how much you've had, how much, how much what, going into a conversation or into a situation, knowing what you're going to drink, and that's it. Which leads us to another weird concept, the whole idea of drinking to the glory of God. I would have never told you growing up that that was something a Christian could do, but it's biblical. If you're choosing option two, you are drinking to the glory of God. That's the choice you're making. We see this in Deuteronomy. When God is saying, this is how much you need to be giving in tithe. Um, you need to give this amount of tithe to the temple work or to the tabernacle work. And then a portion of that, you do this with your family. Watch what it says. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Okay, that's for, for the work of God. Use the silver, however, to buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, beer, or anything you wish. Then, what do we do with all this? food and, and drink. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. It's almost as if saying when we gather together, if you're an option two person or family, you're saying we're going to model that whenever we take a drink of this, whenever we take a bite of this, we're doing it to the glory of God. I'm not abusing this. It's a sacred. If I engage this, I'm engaging this to his glory. And it has tagged on the end. And don't neglect the Levites, they were the priests, living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. The priests were not allowed to engage in alcohol when they were performing their temple duties, but off the clock, they were allowed to. And it's, it's, look at, it's looked at as this amazing picture of, of a different reality. By the way, at, at NBC, one of the things that we choose to do is that within our community groups, like any type of sponsored event that's NBC, we choose to have those be non-alcoholic events. Not because we think alcohol is wrong, but we just don't know where people are and their struggles and stuff. And so we just say, if it's an official NBC thing, do whatever you like in your private time or when you get together with people from your small group. But if it's an official event, we just don't do it. Now, other churches don't have issues with that. That's awesome. That's, they're being biblical too, but we've just drawn that policy because we care about people. This is something, however, that can be done to the glory of God. But in addition, it, it, when I, the way that I drink actually loves those around me. The second parameter is that I surround myself with believers who've been given permission to call me out. People in my life who could say, you know what, you have had too much or you're going into a situation that's not smart, you shouldn't do that, and this has got to be someone more than your spouse because there's times that you don't listen to your spouse. This needs to be a brother or a sister in the Lord who loves you, has a similar perspective on this that can call you out if you're choosing to be someone who's taking option two. Third parameter, and I love this, it's the love trump. This is saying that even though I've got freedom, I lovingly choose to trump my freedom with love whenever certain circumstances happen. Whenever I'm with someone who used to drink too much, I've got the freedom to drink, but I'm gonna trump my freedom with love for this person. Paul talks about this too. Paul says, if your brother or sister is distressed, looking in the yellow, because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. 
Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean. In other words, there's nothing intrinsically evil about food or alcohol. But it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. The heart is love for someone else. I glorify God and I'm exercising option two, even in trumping my freedom out of love. The second thing that I trump my freedom for love is when I'm with someone who currently drinks too much. Not just someone who, who that was their story. Like, so if, if there's someone who used to drink and God's like brought them out, there's a ton of healing. The thing as a loving believer that I don't do is say, hey, let's go get some drinks or come on over, have a beer. If I know that's part of his backstory, I'm not doing that because I love the guy. I got freedom to drink, but I'm not going to dump that on him. Secondly, if someone's currently a believer that drinks too much, I do not choose to engage in drinking with that person. Paul's very clear about this. And he says, listen, if, this per- if you're around a Christian that drinks too much and you drink with them, you're doing two things. You're both making yourself viable and open and vulnerable to the fact that your whole perspective on the gift that alcohol is is going to be diminished to the point that it's no longer a gift and it's going to be a curse. Secondly, you're going to open up a further season for this person's life to be away from God's perspective on alcohol. Don't do that. Proverbs even says it this way. Listen, my son, be wise. Keep your mind on the right course. Don't associate with those who drink too much wine. I trump my freedom for love anytime I'm around someone like that. And the last part, this I don't think is in your notes exactly as it's put, but this is important for us to understand as well. I trump my freedom with love when I'm with a believer whose view of alcohol conflicts with mine. I will love them by resisting judgment of their healthy refraining from alcohol in spite of my personal freedom to drink. In other words, don't be a jerk about your freedom. Don't rub your freedom in someone else's face because you don't know why their convictions were originated or why, why their convictions are held the way that they are. Here's the thing. I would love it if Manuka Bible Church was the type of place that completely, 100% took one of these two options. 100%, with all the passion of their heart, they said, I am an individual who has convictions against drinking, so the way I don't drink glorifies God and it loves those around me. I'm not a person who stands in judgment of people who handle alcohol healthy. I don't stand in judgment of non-believers. I'm a person who operates in such a way that I'm a beacon of light to a broken and dark world. Or I'm a person who drinks, and the way that I drink, I glorify God with it. I'm not drinking to excess. People don't know me for that. I'm not disqualifying myself by the way that I drink. In fact, when people watch the way I drink, they see a picture and a beacon of of Jesus because they see the control that I have and the fact that I enjoy it in sacred amounts like a gift, not like water. When people look at me, they see a countercultural difference, just like the first one is a countercultural difference. And when they see that countercultural difference in my life, they are brought to a point of questioning, why is this person different? And your answer is Jesus. And that's awesome. May we be the type of church that is a beacon for him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray that you fortify our convictions. Those in this room that, that are just convinced and convicted that, that alcohol is not something for them, I pray that you bolster that conviction, that you, you help people who are, are in a point of alcoholism recognize that this is just not their deal, that like Jim, they could be a beacon of light for you from the healing that you bring. 
and the sustaining power of, of your presence over anything else. And Lord, for those in this room um, where alcohol is a gift, Lord, I pray that you, you hold them fast to your standard, the parameters that you set up for their benefit and the benefit of those around them. Lord, I pray that the sum total of, this, of these two options will be your glory and we'll give it to you. It's in your name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. amen.